You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projections. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolokowski and his definitely better half, Hava. As- the amazing thing about the Lawrence Welk show is that every single one of the shows was aired live originally and then recorded as it aired live for syndication. So when you're watching these episodes, you can see the high level of musicianship, high quality of the dancing. I mean, it's like perfection, you know, they only have, they don't have takes to get these musical numbers and dance numbers down. They, dead one week to rehearse and they better have it down. And they, I mean, they pull it through every single time and you can tell when there's um, something that happens because they ad lib, but they're such consummate performers. They're so talented. It's, it seems like it's part of the show and it's really, um, I always got into it. I don't know what attracted me to it initially as a child, but, my mother used to bribe me to do things like, oh, if you pick up your toys, you can watch Lawrence Welk. Um, and, uh, you know, and I would totally fell for that. So I still do that. To and, 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 and of course, that was, I mean, the show went off the air, I think, in 1982. I think the show went off the air. So you okay. were watching, you were watching it in, in, in I guess, in uh, reruns. Uh, that were being shown on public TV, right? Well, the original, I mean, I was born in 77 and we're talking, I remember it being in the old house. So I moved when I was five from Yukon, Idaho to Idaho Falls, which was called moving in town. So I remember being in the old house and still watching it. So it was probably live then. And then as a teenager, I got back into it and I used to come home. I took a year of courses at Idaho State University, which is in Pocatello, which is an hour away from my hometown. I used to come home just to watch Lawrence Welk with my family every Saturday. <laughs> I would come home Fridays after class and stay until Sunday. But the highlight of the week was watching Lawrence Welk with my family. Um <laughs> I know Mr. Welk was very big on Tineas. I mean, it, obviously the level of Tineas that he has is not a, the level of Tineas that like a Jewish community would have, but like the costumes, especially compared to like uh, variety shows and performances of now are very modest. Um, the, Right, right, and, and, and let's let's just give people a sense who don't remember what the program was. It wasn't your tip. It wasn't a variety show like Ed Sullivan. Uh, it was basically a music program, right? You know, Ed Sullivan. Right. Would, Ed Sullivan would have jugglers, uh, ventriloquists, stand-up comics. I mean, this was a show that was pretty much music. I think for the complete hour, there might have been. I mean, Welk did a little bit of, I guess, some sort of like intro to the program. I guess he tried to crack a joke or two, but it was mostly, it was mostly like 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 big band. Originally, I think big yeah. band music. Yeah. Then and then later, you know, he you know he tried. I think as the show progressed, he did try. You know, as you know, it was on for thirty years in various uh, iterations, he did try to introduce. 
what was more popular music. It wasn't just like, you know, old fogey music, right? Yeah, right. So he did, and he um, brought in fresh blood, so to speak, um, performers. He, he still had the old timers on. Um, but he had, he would bring in younger performers and, and, and they would do more popular music to keep things exciting and fresh. Um, but if you're a Lawrence Welk person, you can recognize the performers from year to year <laughs> and you get all excited when he says, you know, well, here comes Joanne Castle to play Exodus for us. And like, you're just, you can't wait to see her, you know? Um, and there's, there are dance numbers, but they're, the dance numbers are really all about the music, as you said. Um, Lawrence Welk was a primarily his instrument was accordion, and he was also a band leader. Right, and 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 you know, people talk about you know Ed Sullivan's lack of personality and still the show's success. I mean, Welk, you wouldn't necessarily call him a dynamo, although he was very excited. I think about the numbers like he would be very and even more than the numbers i think you hit it what you said Chava. he was very supportive of his performers um you know he would always give them a, a very big compliment like the lennon sisters or somebody like they were right. on and he would always say and now we have this and this you know um you know the great and wonderful dance team or whatever it was um and uh, you could tell that they were very it was it was not just family oriented. You could tell everybody liked each other on the show, like all the. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, the PBS reruns that they play to this day on local PBS stations around the country, instead of having commercial breaks, they have host segments basically with the original performers that are still alive, which were, you know, the youngsters back then. And they talk about, you know, how it was really a family, you know, everybody loved each other, everybody supported each other, one of them got sick, and everybody helped. And, you know, when people started to pass away, yeah. it was occurring in the 70s, it was something similar to what's happening uh, in the 50s and 60s in films, just like at that period, uh, the studios basically started to come apart and were mo- mostly a distribution center as opposed to creations. Uh, what happened in the in the late 60s and 70s was that programs didn't need a network anymore. There was this idea of syndication right. where the people who produced the program would just try to sell it to various outlets throughout the country. And there was another program that did very well in syndication. At the very same time, it was canceled by CBS. It was called Hee Haw. And you might remember it. It was a sure. Right, right? So Hee Haw yeah. right? so continued its run in syndication, as did the Lawrence Welk Show. And that was, I think, what in a way what saved it and what preserved it for another 10 or 11 years. Because, you know, clearly by 1971, and when it went off the air on ABC, you know, they wanted, well, we, we have to have more with it fair. We have to have more cool fair. And the people who were creating the Lawrence Welk Show said, well, we think we can sell this. And it was still being shown uh, on, in various television outlets throughout the country, maybe even, you know, even, even in a stronger way, you know, than when they had to kowtow to what the network wanted. And I think that's when I think from 1970, 1980, I think that's when you have this sort of cocoon-like sense of the Lawrence Welk show, where we're not going to incorporate the type of hard rock. We're not going to incorporate the drug uh, theme type of music. Um, there still might be, you know, you know, you know, 
maybe you know a, a pop tune here or there. I think that's when it really starts to become totally bubble music, totally um, you know uh, completely you know just the old time thing. I remember there was there was also as you said, unlike a lot of the fifties and sixties programs, Chava, where they were like American Bandstand where you had like the kids, you know, dancing and stuff like that. I remember in the Lawrence Welk show, when I used to watch it, there'd be towards the end of the episode, you know, these uh, ballroom dancing, these, these couples would get up there on the stage and dance while the orchestra was playing. Do you remember that? Right. Right. And I think, uh, I think Mr. Welk himself would dance with ladies every once in a while and you could just see the thrill on their faces, but it's never young people. In yeah. fact, my mother and father would always joke like every time that they would show the, the couples dancing to the big, you know, to the band music, they would say, all those people are dead now because <laughs> yeah. uh, they're, they're old back then. Um, and um, when I say that Lawrence Welk in the end began to hire younger performers and perform hipper music, you're right. It was always champagne music. It was always, you know, he always kept it light. It was always... He never did anything that was um, would be considered controversial, but he didn't like Carpenters, you know, um, yeah, yeah, adult contemporary stuff that we consider adult contemporary today. He would perform, right? Some but, of that they, stuff right but, but, but in his way, like he'd have one of his singers yes. do it in a different right. way, uh, which right? Was, exactly. Which was a little bit, you know, I guess a more saccharine-like version, I would say. Um, it's schmaltzy for sure. Yeah, there's. Yeah, they, you can't gloss over that, but that's part of the appeal. And I think, you know, coming up from that, you know, that section of the country, that sort of Germanic section. So polka music was, you know, you could tell that that was also something that they had uh, a part of the program was dedicated to. Um, and um, I always think when I when I think about polka music and the Lawrence Welk show, I think about you know S, one of SCTV's greatest creations was the Schmangi, <laughs> the Schmangi brothers, where you know where where Eugene, Eugene <laughs> Levy thought about that <laughs> when Eugene Levy and John Candy did the Schmangi brothers, which is really like taking that Lawrence Welk schmaltz to the ultimate degree, you know, Mrs. Veriachki and her and and, and, and her Kolopchkas, whatever it was that she was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was very much, very much, it was like, it was sort of like the type of Lawrence Welk independent program that you might see in Upper Ontario and someplace like that. So it was a, uh, it was, it, it's clearly was very much open to, uh, to satire if you really, if you really look at it. So, so wh- wh- why do you think, you know, part of what we try to do on this program, Chava, is to give people um, ideas. So you, you, you think that if there's like a good vibe you get from watching, you, you really think there's so many people in our audience would enjoy it or would see that, you know, like you talk, when you came on the last time, you talked about the beauty and of the Archer's film, uh, The Red Shoes. Um, do you really think people will can watch this program and, and marvel at the artistry and at the, at the quality of the musicians? The I film? mean, sure. But there's also just the like very um, brainless. I mean, sometimes you want to just escape life, right? Like I happen to have a very stressful job. I love my job. It is very stressful. And sometimes I just want to turn on Lawrence Welk and have something light and fluffy that entertains me and takes me away for a few minutes from reality. You know, it's very well performed. Um, It's 
and you know, it's not going to be challenging you in any way. <laughs> this is not intellectual by any means, but it's just fun. And if you can um, sort of expand your mind, if you're used to watching modern television and you want to try something a little bit light and fun, <clears throat> and it never takes itself too seriously. You know, uh, there's always an element, you know, even though the performers are incredible and they're never laughing at, at themselves, but like, you know, it's not, they're not challenging you in any way. They're not asking you to expand your mind to accept German expressionism or, or you know, it's just light, fun. Did he, did he ever do, did he ever do like a Jewish medley? I think he sometimes did that. I seem, yeah, I, see, so I, I seem to remember, I seem to remember him saying, wishing all our Jewish friends a happy Hanukkah. I think I remember him saying that. Sure. During the Christmas so season. we were watching Lawrence Welk. I don't remember. It was right before Hanukkah. We were watching an episode of Lawrence Welk. And it was an autumn episode from the eighties. And he mentioned his friend. What was the rabbi's name? Tati? Rabbi Mag, he said, I want to wish my friend Rabbi Magnan, he just turned 90 years old. And he, you know, he's here in Hollywood celebrating, um, Yom Kippur with his congregation. And I was like, what? And I had to immediately like Google who's this Rabbi Magnan. And turns out he was like the Hollywood rabbi and he looked to be Kanainahara 96 and, you know, led the Kahila until that age. So it is, you can see some Jewish stuff every once in a while in there. And he does do medleys of like, you know, like a, um, have a Nagila right. <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Again, it's just fun. It's just a no, he, fun. He, he did Fiddler on the Roof that night. Yeah. Ah, that's right. Yeah. What's interesting, you know, is that he was, he was no fool. Um, Again, I don't know if he, at the end of his life, he was extremely wealthy, but I know that there's the Welk Resorts. In Branson, yeah. Missouri, right? And, and yeah, I that, can't wait. I want to go so bad. Yeah, and and of course, Branson is this for people who don't know is this tremendous haven for uh, for all different types of musical uh, styles, especially you know bluegrass and country music. But there's actually, I guess, a place where if you go to the Welk Resort, I guess you you could probably uh, you know get a sense of, of of the old one and two over there, and uh, they might have that type of music and. You know, it's it's a four star resort. That much I do know. So really, wow. It, it sounds like the Welk uh, the Welk family is is making some money somehow. So. All I know is like some of the real classic people, like Joanne Castle, who's my that's my girl. I can I want to go there and see her play so bad. <laughs> it's like on my bucket list, but uh, yeah. So I, I, on the Simpsons, they said that uh, Branson, Missouri, is like. Vegas, if it was run by Ned Flanders. <laughs> yeah, it's a Ned Flanders show. And and that and that's also an aspect of the show is that you know he wanted people with no scandals, so he would try to get religious people. He was Catholic, but he would get Mormons and other you know religious people who who didn't have any scandals. Quite a few Mormons. I know a lot of the younger performers that he hired in the late seventies and early eighties right before it went off of uh, live performance um, or from Brigham Young University. 
Right? So even though your family was Mormon, they didn't feel there was anything. They thought it was okay. Do you, do you think Don, I, did Donnie and Marie ever hang out with Lawrence Welk, or do you think that was like I? Was, that's that would be incredible. I don't know if that ever happened. I mean, it makes it makes they sense. Died. It makes sense that they would. Yeah. That they would because like, I think Donnie and Marie when they had their. Um, and, and you could probably find their episodes on, on YouTube. When they had their uh, primetime show in the 80s, it was also very wholesome type of uh, type of program, right? And right. I think, I think it was sort of like tapping into the same thing. I think there was another element, though, there, which was, you know, it was sort of like a net Finicello type of a factor in terms of Marie. I think that was part of it. You know, she's so beautiful and so wholesome at the same time. It's sort of like, you know, I can't wait for her to do something a little bit pushing the envelope. I think that's part of the reason why uh, people like Donnie and Marie, uh, this, you know, this, this brother and sister act, maybe in ways that, again, I don't know if it's the same audience, but I would assume that you could probably get some of that same stuff from Donnie Marie. Although I think that was more like a classic, Variety show where they did they did comedy skits and things like that, which which you're not going to find on 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 uh, Lawrence Welk. I think right. So the biggest I would say skit kind of thing that Lawrence did was to have he had one guy. Um, I don't recall his name right now. He's more of the comedic performer, so he would have like him on like a funny stage. I, the Halloween episode, he plays a wizard. And he's trying to, you know, make himself look handsome. He does all these spells. There's a little bit of pyrotechnics. And he sings a song. And, of course, his voice is incredible. And he's like a consummate performer. He's And he's just hamming it up. And so that's a little bit skilt-like. But still, the focus is always on the music and Lawrence Welk. So if you're a music person, you're going to love it. <laughs> and you don't want to challenge yourself too much. But you want to see really quality um, music. It's it's definitely um, worthwhile. Check it out on YouTube. We saw he was not part of the fast track, um, and I, I guess you know his success is a is a sign that you know there can be a Fred Rogers, there could be a Lawrence Welk, uh, there could be good guys out there. And uh, I don't know if you would say that they were exactly like they appeared, but I guess that's also something that especially if you're into nostalgia, that, that could be interesting. I think we can segue here, and Chava, stay with us, if you, if you don't mind. But when we talk about how television in the 70s wanted to become more edgy, and by the time, you know, 1975 came around, I think the only variety show was, was Carol Burnett. I think the other ones really all fell by the wayside. Maybe Flip Wilson was at 73 or 74, but all of them, you know, they tried to be hip, they tried to continue. And I think Carol, I think, went the longest but what was interesting was another really supreme example of syndication, uh, and it was out of the ITC network, I think, a Lord Guard, I think, from out of London, uh, was The Muppet Show. And that was something that I think uh, Jim Henson and company, the Lou Guard and, and The Muppet organization said, we're going to just do this completely in syndication. And I think it really still is, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the great, it's the, the most successful syndicated program uh, is The Muppet Show. And um, it, it really sort of shows you that, that the networks didn't want to take a chance on it. They didn't know if people were going to be interested. And the show itself can, is very much a sticky type of show. The show isn't, like you said, the Lawrence Welk show where um, 
it's all filmed in, in one take. It's obviously spliced together with a tremendous amount of work uh, to make it happen. A lot of, you know, trick photography and, and camera techniques. And I, I think one of the greatest accomplishments of the Muppet Show, we've talked about it before, is how they were able to incorporate guest stars into the program and to break the fourth wall and to have them come on. Uh, I talked uh, a number of, uh, I think last year, one of our earlier shows, I talked about Peter Ustinov and, and his incredible performance. And I mentioned to, to, to Yitzchuk that so many of the performers on The Muppet Show um, don't get it. I mean, you can see that they were trying to bring someone popular into the show, but you can always tell there's something I saying. I'm really talking to a puppet. I mean, this is not real. And and come on, you guys realize that these guys, these these characters around me, they aren't really characters. There's somebody down there pulling their string and 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 sticking their hands up here. But there were other characters like Ustinov and others who were able to seamlessly connect and sustain the illusion and still be part of that fun, that tongue-in-cheek incredible fun. And just like Lawrence Welk, the Muppets also did a lot of popular songs, not popular Beatles songs and other songs, and they would place them into this strange type of environment where there was a big joke about it, right? Like whether it was, you know, uh, they would take a, a, a song about, you know, while my guitar gently weeps. And because it was, you know, one of the, you know, Dr. Teeth, and one of his uh, musicians, they were able to have the guitar start to cry or something like that, which, of course, you couldn't really do on a regular television program. Uh, the show I want to, uh, that somehow touched me, and I, I can't say that I did it with any great Solomonic wisdom, but I somehow, you know, I, I had, and we're going to talk about Disney Plus in a minute, but I still have my uh, subscription to Disney Plus where you can get all the Muppet shows, I think almost all of them, and season four, uh, which was 1980, uh, they had Christopher Reeve on the show. And, you know, I, I, you know Christopher Reeve, many people think he was just a, a one-trick pony. I know it's a terrible pun, considering, you know, the, the accident, the equestrian accident that paralyzed him uh, for the rest of his life in the 90s, from 1995, uh, 1995, I think, till his death in 2004. But um, he wasn't just, you know, uh, you know Superman. Uh, he he had a, a tremendous range. He was a um, a graduate of Juilliard. Uh, he was in the same class with Robin Williams. John Hausman uh, was his teacher, and uh, he played in a number of uh, you know a, a number of uh, of Shakespearean like roles. He was in Death Trap, the remake, but he did a very good job in that. Um, a number of other uh, period dramas that he was in. Uh, he really had quite a range, and. I think this program, in a way, emphasizes what he was able to do, a tongue-in-cheek comedy, recognizing that he was this, you know, hunky type of icon, but at the same time, clearly playing his own, um, uh, playing his own piano, uh, when Miss Piggy breaks Rolf's fingers or does something with him so he's not able to play, um, and he, he does a, a very fine, has a very fine singing voice, you know, as well, um, and I think the skits really play off of the Superman persona, but at the same time, he really uh, interacts wonderfully with all the with all those Muppet performers, Miss Piggy specifically, um, but with Kermit as well. And you know, it, 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 to me, especially knowing how Christopher Reeve's life ended, and we always talk about 
give you meaning to your life. You know, how he really became, you know, a, a Superman, a, a person who became an advocate, of course, for stem cell research, but also for what it was possible to do for a person who had become a paraplegic. Um, the, the real Mesira Snefish that he had, the foundations that he created for research, um, you know, he, he, he became much more religious like many people do when they uh, go through tragedies like he did. Um, and he became a Unitarian and a believer in God and a believer in higher power. And, and, and knowing what happened to him, I, I, to me, it was a big muster to see him, to see him in his prime, to see him in his youth, uh, to see him in, 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 with Simcha um, in, in, in that program. So I, I think if you're looking for a Muppet episode to watch and to get a sense of, you know, of, of that type of where variety shows went, I think it's a great option. Um, it, as I said in the last couple of weeks, it goes down smooth. And, and, and it really, in a way, makes you interested in what Christopher, other things that Christopher Reeve uh, was able to appreciate, the fact that he was a, mostly a relative unknown in 1978 uh, when he was chosen to have the title role in Superman. And of course, he didn't even get top billing, as you know. Brando gets top billing. I think even Gene Hackman. Might might have gotten billing above them. These are two you know, Academy, great Academy Award winning actors. Um, Margot Kidder, of course, had been uh, you know she had been in a number of films, Sisters, and other things before that. She was somewhat known as well. And Christopher Reeve was the unknown, but to me, he steals that movie not just because you know of his aerodynamic ability, you know, because he he had he had he had been involved in gliding, so he knew all about. You know, how to move his body in a way that those ropes and cables could make it appear as if he was actually flying. And remember, you guys are too young to remember this. But in 1978, when the movie came out, you will be, you will believe a man can fly. It was really the, you know, the Salkin brothers, these Jewish guys who produced this film, um, Russian Jews who produced this film. Uh, they realized, you know, that now was the time that a superhero movie that was could actually work. You know, up until now, as, as we've talked about Yitzchak, we talked about uh, last year in the Batman serial, right, right, where they're 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 in like boxer shorts and they're like driving in a car. You know, the Superman movie was really the the beginning of what has now become almost you know a, a craze to the point that it, it's almost elbowed out all other types of films. But that first, but that first one with the John Williams score is really. You know, tremendous. And Christopher Reeve made it work. You really not just believe the man could fly. You believe that this guy was Clark Kent. You believed he was Superman. Yes. He was he was so effect. He was so charming as Clark Kent. Um, you know, it, it wasn't to me George Reeve's role. You know, he played him sort of as a as a you know as a like like not as a bumbler. Uh, I, I read something today that Christopher Reeve said that he based his performance on Cary Grant's performance in Bringing a Baby, which we mentioned last week. Um, that's how we felt he was going to play. Played Superman, the first live-action Superman on the screen. Uh, they actually, instead of having even the, the you know, the way that, that uh, George Reeves, he, you know, flew by, you, you didn't see his feet, you didn't actually see him fly. The, the way they did it in 1948, was they actually had an animated cartoon. Mm -hmm. Like he, he changed from a, a human 
to a to an animated cartoon while he flew, which is kind of a funny way to do it. But I think actually the same year in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, they used the same effect for Bella Lugosi to turn into a bat on screen. So I think, you know, that that year that was the year of trying this uh mix of, of, of you know, two D animation together with um Mm-hmm. With with live action in order to create. Yeah, look, the, the, those serials. It's a look. Those serials, whether it's versus the Monster Man or the Atomic, whatever it was. Adam Man versus Superman. Adam Superman. Yep. Yeah, look, those were serials, and we've talked about the enjoyment of those. The Superman film is a completely different type of phenomenon. It's right, epic, sure, right? It, it really, you know, it, it really reimagined the possibility, and. You know, and, and for, for I know for the comic sales, it, everything took off. I mean, you know, Chris Christopher Reeve sold that character really, you know, sort of the same way, you know, in, in television uh, a couple of years earlier, Linda Carter, you know, was able to sell Wonder Woman. Um, and, you know, again, to me, Christopher Reeve is a is a much better actor than Linda Carter was. I think, Linda, you know, Linda Carter is a beauty pageant winner. She was Miss World of, or, or whatever the Miss World contestant um, who happened to, you know, be able to, you know, to wear the bustier of, of Wonder Woman. And, and you can believe it's the same way she's drawn in the comics. With Christopher Reeve, he actually had to bulk up for the role. Uh, people, part of the problem was he didn't have the muscles. Uh, and he had to actually bulk up and do weight lifts and build his body to a point uh, that he could actually look like Superman in the costume. You know, unlike Michael Keaton, who wasn't any sort of muscular guy, uh, when Michael Keaton put on the Batman costume, it was clear that the costume itself had sort of this, uh, you know, aspect of musculature that was built into the costume to make Batman seem more impressive. Whereas Christopher Reeve actually had to, you know, go in those tights and uh, fill them in a way that was uh, heroic. Superman was, you know, wholesome entertainment. You have to remember, I, I think once the rating code and I'm telling to both the it's Kankama. Once the rating code was jettisoned, it was like, oh, we can do this. Midnight Cowboy, let's go X, right? You know, almost every, it was like, hey, we haven't been able to do this for, for 50 years, you know, since, you know, since the Hayes Code. So most of you know, the 70s was like an explosion of nude scenes, right? You know, like, oh, we're going to go this. There's going to be a nude scene in The Godfather, a nude scene here, a nude scene there. And it was like, yeah, we can get away with it now. And I think towards the end of the 70s, they said, we don't really need that. Um, you know, again, there'll be definitely films that'll have new scenes. But again, here we're going to have Superman. And, you know, and again, Star Wars, of course, right. uh, at, at the same time. So you really have this idea of, of an epic that's clean and family uh, centered. And, you know, there's people that will tell you that Star Wars and, and maybe the Batman franchises are superior uh, to Superman. Um, but I can't think of a better performance. I mean, you, you can take Mark Hamill, maybe Alec Guinness, who's sort of slumming it. But you take Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, um, Carrie Fisher, and Anthony Daniels, um, and, and, or even you know, Michael Keaton or Jack Nicholson. Can, can you say that any of those performances top Christopher Reeve as Superman? I mean, I don't think so. I think Christopher Reeve really is the standout in terms of being true to the character. Uh, you know, again, I, I think Michael Keaton had a sort of a crazy little, you know, uh, you know, sort of like 
asked the way he played that role, you know, sort of like a sort of like Beetlejuice, like he wasn't there. But you know, I think Christopher Reeve really deserves uh, credit. You know, it's not he wasn't a one trick pony, but I, I think he, in many ways, was the catalyst for Robert Downey Jr. and others who really, as you can see, you know, lately have created quite a you know that they really burst forth on the scene and you know again the marvel cinematic universe i don't know how long it's going to last but i think you know christopher reeve is really the part when you mentioned sctv i thought i thought of another one of kava's favorite shows that also somewhat um somewhat lampooned the you know the, the uh champagne music aspect was uh um oh what's what's the name of the show um with um Martin Mull and uh, oh, Fernwood tonight. tonight, and they had the orchestra. the The house band was Happy Kind and the Mirth Makers, and that was that was also somewhat of a pastiche of that same style. But you know, and, and they're very droll and and you know, not not very mirthful. <laughs> you know, that was the that was the uh, listen, if you, if you, if you, earth makers and they never they never cracked a smile you know happy kind of mouth yeah line. yeah I, I think if you can mention fernwood tonight you have to mention it's it's mary mother hartman. show which is mary hartman mary hartman which i think oh, is, yeah for uh, sure yeah yeah mary Tim, we could do a whole episode on mary hartman mary hartman if you want yeah so mary hartman, mary hartman again which because i think fernwood tonight took some characters that were introduced on mary hartman right. and, and spun out Again, Mary Hart, Mary Hartman is, is an example again of able to 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 have daily episodes just like a soap opera. We've talked about one of the one of the wonderful episodes of soap. Uh, your husband and I have talked about Harold Gould uh, star turn on soap, where he's plays uh, Billy Crystal's roommate in the hospital. And I talked about a soap in general in that episode, and soap deserves accolades too as vintage tv but soap could never have happened without mary hartman before it and mary hartman soap was was a weekly program mary hartman for two years was a nightly program yeah and um again it was really lampooning not only soap operas but middle america life in ways that roseanne is indebted to and some of these other programs so um definitely the best thing louise lasser ever did almost makes our 40 year cutoff which is this is spinal tap um which really you know brought together uh a group of you know it's christopher guest and harry Shearer, um and you know michael mckeon who is um also very very funny um and this is spinal tap which is a mockumentary you know about you know one of England's loudest bands, and there it's all about bringing them back together. Of course, there is no such thing as Spinal Tap, but it really you know completely satirized the whole rock scene, the aging rock stars, um, uh, heavy metal in general, and also it was it was a total uh, uh, send up of documentaries. Right, you know, because you know, there were so many these serious documentaries. Um, you had uh, Martin Scorsese uh, doing this documentary, The Last Waltz. Um, you had Jonathan Demme uh, doing a documentary uh, film, The Talking Heads. 
So, you know, it, it made sense that it, that it was time to send up rock stars, documentaries, and everything. And, 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 and these guys are really, you know, <laughs> these guys are tremendous. That team, Guest, Shearer, um, Hank Azaria, um, Michael McKeon, um, Bob Balaban. And, and, and he, of course, you know, they went on to make a number of, of, of wonderful satirical films and then using, absorbing some of the old SCTV members as well. Fred Willard became part of that group as well. So they basically took so many of these, uh, of these Second City and other sort of comedy troupe comics that you've seen on television, but you don't know who they are exactly, and making these, these really spot on uh, uh, satirical films that are willing to really go where no other films are, are, are willing to go, uh, willing to take risks, um, you know, whether, you know, it's um, a mighty wind, best in show, waiting for Guffman, uh, <laughs> right? And I was talking to your husband today about one of our favorites, at least the, the favorite concept, which is for your consideration, uh, yeah. which... Yeah. <laughs> you, you're, it's like you said you've never been able to sit through the whole thing but even the first 15 minutes any any self-respecting Jewish person has to really you know collapse and belly laughs about what, what they're doing there you know in terms of they're they're filming this the ultimate Tennessee Williams type of drama piece uh, of, of an old Jewish uh, family in the 50s um, and uh, you know with, with these actors you know, uh, you know it's you know they're they're, they're putting on a sh- they're, they're putting on a movie uh, they're they're they are producing a movie called Home for Purim, um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's a great Purim pick. We got a couple weeks to go to Purim, but I, I think that's why I couldn't make it through because I tried watching on Purim and then <laughs> maybe because you were drunk. I, I would say, but but I think that that satirical edge that they had that was the power of SCTV and, and, and a lot of this other stuff, there was really no room for it on television anymore. Um, it, you know, again, you have, you know, uh, Saturday Night Live and these other programs um, that, you know, again, that are like hit and miss. I, I don't really know that much about Saturday Night Live past the very, the, like past the 80s. Um, but, but, I, but I get the sense that, you know, there, was, there wasn't much room for that anywhere else and 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 they've had that 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 little platform to play with i'm not sure exactly you know now they're already quite old but but i think it really it's really part of what i think the theme that we're talking about you know go independent let's go try to find something let's try to craft something um you know again it's it's, i i don't i think lawrence welk would definitely you know would not applaud a lot of the stuff that 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 troop has done but I think I think it shares uh, a little bit of that same spirit, which is oh, you know, sure. absolutely, I totally agree. You know, we can be nonconformist, we can be different. You know, you know, we can have a, a, a type of humor that isn't just in the crotch football or something like that, or you know, or weepy weepy. You know, with Julia Roberts, you know, you know, crying over something or or, or some big chase. You know, again, it, it doesn't it doesn't have any of that. Um, and it's, you know, you know, it's a shame, you know, when you have you know, some of those performers have to do things much more conventionally in order to make money. But I think that the guest sheer troupe um, is in a way 
sort of like the pythons uh you know we're going to do our thing and we're going to push the envelope the way we see fit uh, they're not as they're not as veiled as what, what monty python was about but i but, but i think it's 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 worthwhile you know mentioning them as uh, as as people with a vision I mentioned how most christmas films are difficult for orthodox jews to watch because there's a certain spiritual message that is tethered to the belief in Jesus or the belief in God that can only come about in, 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 in sort of in a Christian way. Um, and I mentioned how, you know, that there are, of course, Christmas movies um, that don't have that element in it at all. They're settled around Christmas and they become sort of a Christmas film, um, but it isn't necessarily the spirit of, of, of Christmas or of Christ that that that's that takes it. In other words, they mention Christmas. There's a big Christmas tree. Uh, there's a Christmas song, a Christmas dance. There's carolers, but it, the, the the program is really it's really a, a ripoff. Uh, and and I, I saw a movie that I had never seen before, and I knew it was called a Christmas classic. <laughs> and that is uh, Christmas in Connecticut. Uh, with Barbara Stanwyck and Dennis Morgan, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, with Jack Carson and Doris Day, uh, and, and that film about, um, it's a great feeling. Uh, Dennis Morgan is the male lead in this film. Uh, it was made right before the end of World War II when it seemed that the, you know, the Allied troops would win. Uh, and it's, 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 many people see it as, oh, we've got to watch that. That's one of our, our, our Christmas regulars. And, and as I was watching the film, I realized that this was a, a, an example of a basically a sort of a screwball comedy setup, um, you know, with a sort of mistaken identity. Um, you know, there's a, a, a Betty Crocker, um, Martha Stewart type of writer who's, who's the star writer of a magazine for women. And it turns out that she's this, she's this incredible gourmet cook and of all the, these wonderful recipes. And it turns out, of course, that she's a fraud, that she gets the recipes from the rest of the Manhattan restaurant that's downstairs from her apartment. And she makes up the rest of the stuff based on her friend's house in Connecticut that she never really even goes to or knows about, but hears about from her friend. And the whole thing is a fiction. And, uh, uh, and that, and that, part is played by Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, Dennis Morgan uh, plays the American uh, a, a, a GI or a, a Marine or someone that was on um, on some sort of a, a troop boat uh, that gets um, torpedoed by a German U-boat. And by the way, in the beginning of the, of the movie, has it seems like you're watching a, a, a sort of a war film because you actually have footage from some uh, some ger- some American war film, and you can see how the German commander, you know, says, you know, fire the torpedo, and you can see the boat go down, and he spends, you know, 16 days on a lifeboat, uh, and then he needs to recover in a hospital, and his nurse decides to write a letter um, to this uh, publisher in order to um, sort of like as a publicity and as a nice way that let this GI, who's sort of a hero, be able to come and spend Christmas in Connecticut with this America's wonderful housekeeper uh, in her farm in Connecticut. Of course, there is no farm really that she owns, and they have to somehow, uh, she has to go up there. And, and, and part of it is very typical, you know, 
a situation where you're not sure, you know, are they going to discover that this whole thing is a farce and Trudeau doesn't know how to cook. Um, and, and again, they fall in love. And but 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 she but the only way uh, there was an agreement for her to go use this house in Connecticut was for her to marry the architect in Connecticut who's been pining after all these years. So that's a tonight that he'll do it, but they have to actually get married. And of course, that's part of the issue. There's a baby involved. There's another baby. So Christmas is really nothing to do with it, although it's happening during Christmas. Um, there is, it's not like the spirit of Christmas takes over. Uh, so I could recommend this film because it really, although there is there is a song that is sung by Dennis Morgan that's clearly some sort of reference to Bethlehem and, and peace and love, it's Christmas. It's not like Miracle on 34th Street. It's not like The Bishop's Wife. Um, it, it's not even like It's a Wonderful Life. It really, Christmas is incidental to the film. Uh, it could have been, you know, over any sort of holiday. What what I do want to mention, though, is that the the supporting roles of the film is, is Essie Sakal, otherwise known as Jakob Grunwald, Cuddles, you know who I'm talking about, Yitzchak, of course, um, was, he was in so many uh, films. Um, he always plays, you know, unlike... Um, other Hollywood actors that affected an accent. He was actually a, a Hungarian Jew uh, who played in so many films, and, he, and they placed him in the Old West. I've mentioned him before. So it, it's Sakal's um, acting in this is quite funny. Uh, his usual type of malapropisms and other things that he says. And of course, he's the real cook. He's the one that knows. He plays the restaurant owner. He's the one who knows how to cook. And he's the one who uh, doesn't understand English well and needs to be explained to him by his African-American uh, uh, fellow that works in his, in, his, in his restaurant. So I can say that if you are, you can watch this film and not be overwhelmed by the guilt of saying, oh, I'm enjoying a Christmas movie. Um, it also has a performance that I thought was going to be terrible, but I have to say, um, I, I was very happy to watch of not only Sakal, who's quite a, 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 a large fellow, but by a really large fellow, which is Sidney Greenstreet. Uh, he was in that, he was in the night, he was in It's a Great Feeling as well with a cameo, but here he, play, here he plays the magazine publisher who the film indicates is estranged from his children and doesn't have anywhere to go for Christmas. He's sort of like, sort of like a Scrooge-like character, but really not. Um, and he uh, comes up to spend Christmas there as well. And he sort of tries, he's figuring out what's going on. So there's a lot of Sidney Greenstreet, uh, you know, being incredibly agile. I mean, the man weighed way over 300 pounds. Uh, and of course, he was, you know, in the Maltese Falcon um, and, and, and Casablanca. Uh, he he was he, he started, you know, John um, Houston discovered him, and his first film was when he was 62 years old. So I guess there's hope for Kinalevich as well. You know, you know, 62 years old, uh, he was in his first film uh, in, in the Maltese Falcon. And he became a, a Hollywood icon and, and almost like a team with Peter Lorre, as you know. Uh, you mentioned uh, Peter Lorre last week. And, you know, it, it's it's worth seeing this film for Sakal, um, Barbara Stanwyck, 
always acquits herself well. You know, I don't think she ever, uh, you know, puts in a bad performance. I think uh, she's great uh, as usual. But for the two fat guys, I think it's worth it. So, my friends, watch, watch your step, by the way. Thanks a lot, Kava, for joining us tonight. Um, keep those bubbles. Keep those bubbles swirling around in your life. Uh, and the two. And the one. Right? Yes. And we'll be right. enjoy. Be well, everybody. Take care. See you around. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.